it's actually easier than ever to launch a product or brand. It's harder than ever to get it to stick in someone's mind so that they, you know, navigate to that brand or that brand occupies a space in their memory. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Joe Marchese. And Joe, you have a unique perspective on the truly most advanced, technologically driven parts of the industry. I think we met back when you were at Truex uh, initially. And I'd love to start by getting your take on where we are right now and how technology is really going to help pave the way forward for us in a post-pandemic world. So I think, look, there, there's a couple of things. One, we have to decide what what is a post-pandemic world going to be. I mean, I, I would make the argument that we're already in a post-pandemic world because we are post-COVID you know, COVID existing in the world. And everyone talks about things returning to a new normal. And I think we have, uh, when we look at what's going on in the market right now, we have to assume some percentage of, of the changes made to people's everyday lives are going to hold. And so technology, you know, the, the, the overused uh, example is that everything's kind of accelerated, uh, you know, three to five years into the future. Um, the question is, have the business models caught up to the consumer behaviors accelerating, meaning more people are watching OTT than ever before. More people are you know, using TikTok. More people are you know, opting for digital subscriptions. The question is, you know, are the business models going to catch up? And so, you know, the business models catching up will be applications of technology and not just to the places you'd think in streaming environments or uh, different um, internet delivered properties, but will technology be able to augment what I would call, and I think the market calls traditional uh, uh, delivery mechanisms, meaning how quickly can technology be applied to billboards and out of home? Um, how quickly will technology be applied to linear to make it more efficient? Um, I just think that there's there's so much room to make things more efficient um, that that's, that's what I see coming next. You also have been sort of almost a pundit between doing a lot of writing and editorial contribution for years and also serving on the board of the Paley Center for Media. Um, when you're sitting around those tables with the Paley Center with other industry leaders, what are, you know, sort of topics A, B, and C right at the moment? Well, I think, you know, just going back and, and then and thinking about what, what everyone's thinking about today was every every industry in in what was quote unquote traditional media or advertising was always trapped in the, the innovator's dilemma of, you know, they're still making a lot of money uh, of traditional means, even if it's not the most efficient or most consumer friendly uh way to make money. And that is, you know, the typical ad model, the reach frequency ad model, GRPs. And it would be, it would be a trope almost to say that like, okay, the way it has been done won't be the way it's done going forward. But, and there's always the but, and the but was, you know, but how do we switch out of that? Like no one's at fault for this. There's no, 
if you look at the value chain, it's not the it's not the brand client that's at fault or the agency or the media uh, publisher slash network that's at fault. It's the system, right? And you can't really break the system being one player. So, you know, you'd think in a in a moment like this, when you have this kind of pandemic happening, you'd wonder if the possibility uh, of taking out of this terrible tragedy some opportunity is is is, I guess, for for lack of a better term, opportunistic. Like, can can you say, hey, in this time when supply might be going down of advertising inventory, when demand might be held back a bit, can you start to mess around with ad models that you couldn't have done that in a in a world where everything was filled up because you were basically turning down money? Um, so if you're going to kind of feel this pain anyway, what can you do? And I think, you know, you see some great examples of it. I think Linda Yaccarino over at NBCU uh, said the other day, like, what do we want the business to look like post-pandemic? Uh, again, I still think post-pandemic, we have to figure out when, like, when when we're going to officially say, okay, now we're post-pandemic, given given what's happening, or just saying we're already in a post-pandemic world, we're in a world where it exists. But you know, the question she posed was, what industry do we want to have later? And so, in this time is the time to do it because you're not going to be maximizing your inventory as it was. Linda, I thought came out of the box really hard. Uh, and NBCU really hard on the upfronts. And I read her statement as, you know, we're going to keep driving the bus here. We're not yielding the wheel um, in terms of some of the uh, noise the A&A in particular has been making about the upfronts. Looking back at your tenure, I know Truex was acquired by Fox and they were widely viewed as sort of first to market on a lot of the most aggressive technological advances, um, both behind the curtain and on air. Do you think that that industry is ready for change? Should it change? Oh, man. The question of, okay, so should it change? Yes, absolutely. Um, the, 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 the banging your head against the wall on what really change means, like I said, there isn't a single party you need to get to change. I think like the system has to. So I think the biggest opportunity is in the D2C brands who have never been fed into the previous system. Now, I think the most interesting part about this D2C brand revolution, which is going to only accelerate during kind of a COVID period, is that you look at them and they say, well, they're, they're data driven and their performance and they're, they're online. And that's true. But once they hit a scale, they have to move to traditional reach vehicles because you have to build a brand. Otherwise, your customer acquisition costs will just consistently go up. Basically, you will pay to reacquire your customers through the platforms all the time. So now, now to the form of the upfront, I kind of have a, I have a, um, I don't want to say contrarian opinion, but I, I think upfronts are going to be more and more important. Now, do they run every year in May for, a, for the broadcast season or are they annual? I don't know. Um, but I do have a, I have a feverish belief, uh, zealot-like belief that there's only 24 hours in a day. You can call me crazy. And that there's only so much of that time spent with screens and that there's only so much of that time that can be advertising time, which means there's only so much that's out there. And if you want to launch a movie in April or you want to, you know, have your car come out or you want, like you need to reserve it because you need to be guaranteed that you're going to have the the bandwidth. And so it, I, I do agree that the changing the current format that's based on premieres and sweeps and and broadcast season that could be very important. But but the idea of the upfront is going to persist. And and part of your you know sort of new world does involve the live experience. 
one of the popular topics of conversation now is how much of the current behaviors, the way you and I are communicating, you know, right now is going to stick. A lot of people, especially when you talk to people in the live entertainment business, all go back to something that I do believe as well, that fundamentally humans want to connect with each other. They want to be in the company of others. We've spent so much time with technology creating ways for people to connect without them being in the same room. What's your take? Are we going to go rushing back when the time comes? In many places, obviously, they already are. Uh, but what's your take there on you know, a world that's been connected yeah. to allow us to not be together and this odd set of circumstances that has been you know, pretty well blocking us from that yeah. in a very, very different visceral way? Yeah, I think I think that's a very, very important question for a, a number of reasons. One is the is the domino effect of, you know, if local businesses are local experiential, which I will, you know, say is just this huge backbone to the economy, which is local small businesses. And those usually gather physical gathering. People commuting to work will change demographics of kind of where people are in the city um, and, and you know, their, their media consumption behaviors and also change. I mean, think about, think about this knock on effect. If you go to work, let's say you go to the office two days a week instead of five days a week. Does that mean you only have two days of work clothes versus, you know, three days of I'm wearing a, an athleisure, like Nike, Nike t-shirt. So that's the question is like, do we change consumption patterns if we change commuting and, and working patterns? And so like, I think, so the, now I'll go back to what I, where I would answer that question, which is, um, the systems haven't been developed to make this efficient. Like we're hacking Zoom right now. Zoom is a great tool for business and conferencing, but we're using it for social interactions, for happy hours, for birthdays, for, you know, family. And it's just not, it's, you know, we've heard, all heard Zoom's fatigue. I also believe that like there's going to be an advantage for people who uh, have a functional workspace, which means it won't look like it did before. But I think that there's an, you know, I've seen people talk about the idea that there's an overestimation of the current uh, behavior is going to be uh, consistent going forward because people do like being around. Like, remember, people going to work isn't just about work. Like, people going to work is, is social circles. It's who you talk to Game of Thrones about that's not your family. It's like we're getting some we're getting some false positives. No, no pun intended here. But like, like we have to work this way. The people that you are connecting with over Zoom right now, you probably knew in real life, right? You and I have met together. Like we've spent time doing had a drink. Like now the same thing with your colleagues. Now imagine fast forward six months, 12 months. So I don't think we'll, I don't think anyone's going to force back to work. And another big question is what will business travel look like? What will the ad, what will ad sales look like in terms of relationship development? Um, but I do think that it'll actually be seen as a value add to have a functional workspace that might be, um, different than we currently conceive going forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I've actually come back into the office the last week or so, and um, I like it here. You know, I'm very happy sitting at my desk in my office. <laughs> yeah, that was, you know? I think that was the tweet that I heard. Someone said, uh, work from home is the future, said said everyone who doesn't have two kids in a two-bedroom apartment in New York yeah, City. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, my kids are older, so they're, you know, it's fine, but my house is, you know, we stayed in the same house that we've been at since 1992 because we could walk to the train and we never wanted to give that up. And so yeah. we never yeah. moved to a, not, a oh. house beyond our, quote, starter house. Yeah. Uh, 
And I'm and, very and happy, uh, you know, look, sitting and, in my office. And just like work is more than work, cities are more than a place you commute to. Like they're cultural centers. Like cities are where there are, you know, plays and art and music. Now the question is when all that comes back, right? And 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 what that looks like when it comes back. But I think that's the I think that's the thing to be considered. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. So when I look at your career, you're you have a unique background in that you've had like really really big gigs at really big entities. But you've also been throughout your career almost a serial entrepreneur. Uh, and I'd love to hear the story in particular of one that you founded uh, and did quite well, uh, Reserve. Um, can you tell us the Reserve story from sort of idea conception to sale? I guess all in it was about a five-year run. Yeah, look, it was – and really I backed and, and helped the founder – co-found it but um but really the everyday ceo is a guy by the name of greg hong who's a guy i'd worked with in the past and um is an amazing operator who's actually doing his next company steno which also backed and invested in um but the the simple concept was that uh all of all of all of um uh, table reservations was a uh supply side market meaning restaurants would just tell you what tables they had available when really it was consumers saying i'd like to go out to eat and say go demand side um but it's a tough, I mean, I, I actually say it was actually one of the harder, harder roads in that, you know, small businesses. And, and I think this is very apropos right now in the world is that small businesses uh, are very unevenly served by technology. I mean, you, you can see it in the delivery kind of market at the moment where um, some delivery is unprofitable and or cannibalistic to local businesses. But now um, they might not be seating people at the same amount. So they need delivery. Um, but it was such an eye-opening experience to to look at a business that said, okay, you know, we have in in travel, we have Priceline and booking and so forth, and in uh, in hotels, we have Airbnb as the modern, but we don't really have in dining kind of other than an open table, which is kind of a supply side market, as I said, like what's the innovation, what comes next, um, and that's also another good example of adoption wise what you think happens next, which is um, everything that was hard to get changed for consumer behavior before will actually become a whole lot easier to, to get consumer behavior for now. Like, for example, I've been going to restaurants, like the whole idea of a preserve from the beginning is you sit down, pay with your phone, you walk out, no payment, right? Um, that was pretty hard because giving someone a credit card was easy enough. But now that there's kind of a forced change in consumer behavior, so I, I've been telling a lot of entrepreneurs this, and at Human Ventures, there's you know a dozen going through at any given time. Um, a, pick a user behavior that you knew was broken, just a market that you just could see was terribly broken, but you couldn't change it because uh, momentum and the way of doing things right now was good enough. Uh, and then pick that market and go after it you know, in a COVID world. That's what you should be building for. You're going out now, you've got a good idea for a startup. You say, hey, that's a good idea. Talk about how you walk somebody through that sort of process of what you need to do to move an idea forward to gain success, because you've done as much of that successfully as anybody I know. Yeah, well, it's, it's a lot harder on the inside than it looks like on the outside. But um, but I'll say that the there's a couple of questions you say to every entrepreneur, which is, well, there's two that are easy, right? Why now and why you? 
The why now is what is technologically different about the world or consumer behavior that means that this thing should exist? Because there's no novel ideas. Everybody had the idea to call a car to your phone, right? Like that was, that was a great idea. But like Travis and Garrett, who had a different approach to the market and Brian Graves is the first CEO, they're like, they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to be the ones that blow through. Here's what's different about the world. You can now have apps and call it to your phone. 4G was coming into play. But then why you? It was like, what, what are you going to do that was different than the market? And it was the approach. And those are really, I mean, that's true for literally everything. Craigslist had, you could share your apartment before Brian, Jessica and Airbnb, right? The, the idea of perseverance. So you see a problem in the market, you see a gap. What is different about the world right now? That because like don't don't think the idea is novel. Like when people say I've got an idea, but I can't share it with you without an NDA. That's usually a first mark of there's no point in having a conversation because if the idea can be stolen by you showing it to me, then you don't have an idea yet. Um, and so so this idea of saying what's different about the world uh, and why are you the one that's going to solve it, and then realize that things are going to change because three months from now the world will look different. I mean. This, this time being an exception, but no matter when you do a new business, three months from then, the world's going to change. Something new is going to happen. Something's going to, uh, a competitor is going to do something different. Technology will exist. So can you adapt as you go? And that's part of the why you question. Can you attract talent? Can you raise money, et cetera? Great. And who out there, Joe, when you look out and you say, you know, that's someone to really emulate either you know, on the private equity VC side or on the entrepreneur side, what's really caught your attention that you said, hey, man, that was, that, that's, that was smart and they really executed well? Oh, man. Um, there's so many uh, that, I, that I really have, have enjoyed looking at the model of. I will say that, you know, like Human Ventures, the other studios, uh, it seems to be a trend in the market to have a studio model, which is just, it's, that's just fancy term for, you know, funding early, like pre-seed into seed or being involved with entrepreneurs early so that you're there for the seed round of investing. Just because capital, especially friends and family capital, is abundant. But like seed investing, if you're doing just a couple of seed investments, like you it's you should only be investing money you can lose. It's like it's like going gambling. Like when you go to but when you do a portfolio or you provide a certain amount of support in in addition to um I mean, when you look at like, again, actually, Garrett as an example, before he did Expa, um, I also see uh, science as a great uh, studio model that is kind of at the intersection of media and tech. Um, but I think that that kind of trend, um, Andrew Wilkerson at, at um, Tiny Capital, like you'll, you'll see these, these investors who are very smart about um, providing a level of support that's more than just a check. And and look, A16Z Andreessen Horowitz was doing it early on by having a platform behind just the investing. And I think you see more and more of that. It's less important as you get to later stage. I mean, unless you're all the way at the private equity level where you're going to provide so many resources that you're going to be a turnaround shop. Um, but I, that, that's, the, that's the trend I see in the early stages. And what about the attempts of agencies and brands to be more entrepreneurial. You know, way back when, I remember when Bob started RGA Ventures and they were incubating, you know, at their shop and a number of the other, I think, for some reason, the IPG sticks in my head as having done a better job than some of the others. But what's your take there? Is anybody doing that well? You know, I, it's hard to say. Um, I, I might not have my finger on the pulse of exactly who's, who's everyone who's doing it. 
What I will say is the reason why it made so much sense for an RGA or any of the advertising agencies. Now, actually, you see some of these uh, um, kind of brand innovation shops or brand creation shops like uh, Red Antler or, or, or some of those some of these others, which basically help entrepreneurs take their idea and put a brand around it and marketing and figure out how it's going to get launched. And the reason why that's so important is kind of this to this concept of it's it's actually easier than ever to launch a product or brand. It's harder than ever to get it to stick in someone's mind so that they, you know, navigate to that brand or that brand occupies a space in their memory. Um, because, you know, the platforms are great direct response vehicles and yet have difficulty building brand over time. And that's why you have to keep reacquiring your customer through them. Versus if you can build a brand where people come to you first and you don't need to be reliant on the platforms and that you can, you know, do out of home and other things, that's the only way to reduce CAC over time. So that is all to say that one of the most important functions of an early stage business is expression of the mission and vision of the company through a brand uh, and, and one that consumers will remember over time. And so that is why it made sense for the creative agencies, especially ones who are helping helping brands launch new companies to do that. Great. And yet some of the old notions still apply, um, like the enduring power of, of great storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's really interesting too, which is, you know, I, I think the interesting thing for me about storytelling right now, that's that storytelling has endured but yet people have been left to their own to figure out what to watch. And they've definitely been left to their own to, to uh, organize what they want to watch together. Like, like the, it reduces when we don't have shared stories, you know, I, I've written about this before, but I think that curation and in, in a human level of creation and, or some, some other level of curation that, that helps people uh, enjoy stories in a similar timeline so that we can then discuss them and talk about them or have shared experiences is very, very important. And I do think there'll be a swing back to that. I think the curation layer to the web, if I don't know what, what .2.0, 3.0, 4.0 we're at here, but whatever one it is, I think that this, this next wave is the curation layer, you know, uh, what Craigslist was to, to 1.0, you know, wire cutter might be to 2, 2.0 and saying, okay, this is a curation layer for, commerce and now what's the creation layer for for everything else yeah certainly business models dramatically affected but on the other end for consumers you could argue there's never been a better time if you like to you know if what you like to watch when you want to watch it on what device you want to watch it we have a, a huge embarrassment of riches right now we do but i mean but to that point is it is it not interesting that Friends and uh, Grey's Anatomy and you know shows that were you know ten fifteen twenty years ago uh, are Seinfeld are the most sought after most watched programs in in you know on demand viewing and they weren't during the time of embarrassment of riches they were cultural zeitgeist you know and you know, popular programming and so I think we're actually going through a time right now where 10 years from now, we won't have many, like when we look back at this time, there won't be many cultural zeitgeist programs like that. I mean, there, there just isn't things like The Office and others that have that have went on such a run to, to occupy such a space in people's minds. That might not happen um, in that time frame. So, or in this current time frame, because things go one, two, three seasons, and, and then they, they come off. So 
what will that mean? What will the library, what will the library value of on-demand services five years from now actually be? Will you five years from now watch a season one of something that, you know, there's only two seasons of my guess is no. Um, And so what will that mean about what gets created later? I think I, you know, I, I love uh, music and most of the bands that I listen to have been around for 30, 40, in some cases, 50 years. You have to wonder today about sustained success um, yep. to that point. And for years, that was a measure of success. Now you can be so white hot in such a short period of time, right. uh, but sustaining is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, no, I think that's I, that's exactly right, and because because of the curation, and because it's like you know, the New York Times has a has a slogan: "All the news that's fit to print." Right? That's because that comes from literally there's space on a page where they can print news, and they have to decide what's worthy of your time that goes there. There's no such thing as space, right, anymore in, in the on-demand world. So it's it's what gets made. So what will that new forcing function be, amongst which people you know stick with something over a period of time? And I think the, the two factors or the two vectors will be quality of storytelling and story arcs so that, you know, people can stay with something for longer and it has residual value, you know, years from now. It's, it's got a timelessness to it. I think that's it's um, I'm, I'm not saying it as eloquently as as John Langraff, who, who might be one of the smartest people I've ever met in, in, in the television and media world um, or just period. But. Uh, you know, he kind of talks about that with FX, like, like the show could last and you could watch it, you know, and you just imagine the shows that you could watch from FX five years from now, the Americans is going to hold up perfectly. Um, so, so I think that's one vector. And then the second is business model. How expensive is it? You know, can it, can it, it will it live purely as someone will subscribe just for that? Is it that good? Uh, can it fit with advertising? And, you know, is the advertising model going to evolve as we switch to OTT? Um, or will it try to look like the television model, in which case it will kill itself if it if it tries to do that? There's just no there's no consumers are going to watch it um, if it tries to mirror exactly television and OTT environment. And so without, you know, one of those two things, people pay for it or advertisers pay for it, then it can endure. Fantastic. And looking across at the various genres of media, obviously advanced television has been in your wheelhouse, but just in as, as an observer when you look at the, let's put it very simple, you know, winners and losers of the last, you know, five years, when we look at outdoor, we look at audio, we look at traditional print, magazine, newspaper, who do you see is really having done a good job there to adapt on the fly? And who do you think is sort of uh, planning their own funeral? Huh. Well, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I would almost argue that no one's planning their own funeral from a standpoint of uh, like there's no one who's just running out the clock because they're saying they're going to run out the clock. There, there's probably a willful, a, a willful disregard for the trends and that that something has to change in, in particular industries. Now I'd say, I'd say audio is adjusting pretty well and it was really, really adjusting well with podcasts too. Um, it's a very powerful medium in my, in my mind, because you can't really like, you have your earbuds in no matter which direction you look you're still listening to your earbuds right so i, I love i love audio as a future um the creative for audios needs to adapt over time just like each of the models but I, but I, I think that there's a lot there now covid changed the behaviors a bit and things are going to shift and we'll have to see when commutes come back what happens with podcasts you know podcast ad model really hasn't quite innovated yet but, but that leaves a lot of potential and upside um 
print is by by no fault of its own. And that's why you see like the the Wall Street Journal and a lot of things that are and New York Times that are really more and more focused on uh, subscription. And then I think that finally the the out of home, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of any medium where if you watch a futuristic movie, like if you watch Minority Report, the the only advertising Tom Cruise is looking at during Minority Report is out of home, right? It has it has all the, it has all the upside in the world um, in terms of it's going to exist. Like space outside is going to exist in the future. Um, the question of how quickly you can roll out technology uh, is is that's the question. And then also the other problem with with any of these traditional mediums is, you know, they are broad reach vehicles. That's that's they they build brands in society. You're not just building your brand with your target audience. You want to build it with everybody. And so uh, the idea of them, the the truth of of out of home or or any of these other more general mediums meeting up with the fiction that digital says well look we can prove roi no matter what um is pretty difficult and so getting you know the, the ones that i think uh get into trouble start to say oh well, we want to compete with facebook and google on facebook and google's terms or facebook google and amazon on facebook google and amazon's terms they can't like it's you know it's the it's it's you just don't go fight a war with someone on their turf um and and even like an ad network's going to deliver more cookies to people who are you know auto intenders than any you know combining all of the out of home and all the tv networks together because you know they claim to reach 2 trillion people a day right so how how are you going to compete with that so i think that there there has to be a kind of an understanding of of a smarter way to position in the market let's talk a little bit about uh, joe marchese in the present day and I'd love to talk a little bit about one of the properties that is now in your family, and that's a, a beloved property here in New York, the Tribeca Film Festival. Mm. Uh, next year, I guess, will be the 20th anniversary celebration. Talk a little about how I, I, irony has put Tribeca, in a sense, back to where its roots were right. way back when. Yeah, so that was actually, I mean, really James uh, Murdoch and his Lupa, Lupa Systems group led that and obviously participated in support and, and have been for a long time uh, with Jane Rosenthal, who who is the, the founder CEO. Um, I, I guess what, you know, what you're talking about in the irony here is that um, obviously Tribeca, like a lot of live events businesses are, that are feeling the pain this year, uh, had to take the year off, um, did a virtual, amazing uh, virtual film festival. Um, and now has an, has an even more kind of ambitious goal of doing, uh, which they'll be launching in July, uh, drive-ins, movie theaters at, at stadiums. I mean, tens of thousands of cars be able to go and, and see movies um, to get people outside. But even bigger than that is the ethos of Tribeca was was founded around the idea uh, uh, when Jane and Bob uh, like were looking at it, it was bring people back downtown, bring people like post 9-11, post-disaster, let's unite people around stories. Um, and now, you know, you could think of COVID as 9-11 for the country, right? By, 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 the, by the count, it's larger. Um, it's not as punctuated, but it's, it's there and it's going to, and it's, we need this for everyone. So next year is the 20 year anniversary of Tribeca. Um, you know, the idea of, of kind of bringing more of the country together around stories like supporting local businesses, bringing people back out, you know, let's, let's all hope and, and, and pray and, and whatever you do for, for positive thought, uh, that by, you know, this time next year, we're, we're well past the, the having any physical fear of going outside, but, 
that's uh, you know that's the look. Fantastic, and, and really uplifting New York uh, along the way, and, I, and to right. me, that's a, a big part of what Tribeca has always no. done. No, it's look, you know, that the term Ground Zero really became uh, kind of co-opted post 9/11 by you know downtown New York, and then it was again during the financial crisis, and it is again now. And I believe I believe strongly in the resilience of the city to come back, um, even after this. And I think this one's harder than most because. Um, if it changes work habits, if it changes office culture, if it changes, you know, density requirements. But, you know, I, you look at Asian, different Asian cultures, especially in Japan, where they've dealt with outbreaks of very deadly diseases before and the cities are as dense as ever and people still gather. They just learn responsibility of, you know, if something's coming. Um, so I, I, I believe fully in the resilience. I, I you know, my, my hope is that a city like New York takes the opportunity. I mean, I'll use a very small, silly example, but I mean, do you remember when the L train shutting down was going to be the apocalypse? Uh, well, not a problem anymore. They can get that fixed and they have actually been fixing it in infrastructure because, you know, they're taking this time when they have it really like reevaluating which, how much road space we need and traffic patterns and, you know, like office construction and, and restaurant layouts, like all of that stuff is, is an opportunity, but but the big picture, I just believe fully in the resilience of the city to be a capital for a lot of different things. So that's what we're hoping for. Fantastic. And I know an awful lot of stuff is on pause at the moment. But when you, you know, sort of think about the attributes of companies, businesses, sectors, where if you were going to stepping up at Caesars Palace in Atlantic City and placing your bets – you know, what are some of those attributes or sectors that you think looking ahead to 21, 22 and beyond that are going to be, you know, good horses to bet on? Yeah, well, I, I think let's go back to I think there's no such thing as leverage in scale because um, like the platforms, again, Facebook, Google, Amazon, mostly. There's nothing like you could combine all of the media companies together into one and they still wouldn't have scale compared to any one of them. Right. So scale isn't the uh, the bet. I think the bet in the long term is on brand as leverage. Um, and you saw it, uh, you know, where people are need curators and, and any curator brand. So any brand where someone can say this is worthy of your time and attention, this is worthy of your wallet and, and what you spend money on. Um, that is going to earn a trust with people over time. Like those are brands that I'd, I'd bet on. And then those are actually companies. I mean, look at, uh, look at the companies like Patagonia and others today that are, that are saying, okay, we are, we're, we're both a community, we're commerce. They also make content. Um, you know, it, it was an old trope before that every, every, you know, retail company said, well, we have to be a content company. And obviously that, that is a, hard to impossible given that every content company is still a content company and back to what i said at the beginning is that we don't have more than 24 hours in a day but if you can make people feel a sense of community and loyalty you know your future business profitability and your permission to go into new business lines is all wrapped up in your brand and and so i'd look for what those are um you know what are brands that are smart about using the major platforms but not dependent upon uh, that's that's probably the the difference between um, one or the other. And you've you've heard you know you've heard Barry Diller talk about it with Expedia um, even before COVID. Uh, you know, uh, 
a lot of the OTA industry, 50% of the top line revenue was spent on advertising. And over time, more and more and more went to customer acquisition and lower funnel. And as that increased over time, the tax became difficult. And now in a, in a travel crisis, it gets even harder. So what models kind of come out the other side where people are like press start at? Looking back in your career, and you're still a relatively young guy, but you've, you know, you've been over the race course a few times. Who have some of the great minds been who have really influenced you? You know, whether it's going back to the beginning of your career or, you know, later, uh, the last 10 years at Truex, Fox, yeah, you know, I mean, part of your career. Well, look, for, for sure, um, you know, I guess early in my career, it was the opportunity to talk with senior level marketers when I was when I was first starting um, uh, Truex. And, you know, it's funny, I, I didn't know from anything, the advertising world, per se, when I was first starting, I knew I knew a bit of the tech and product and kind of strategy world. And, and I understood what was possible in the market. Um, but later in the career, you know, what I, what I was most excited about and what I'm most thankful for later in the career, the opportunity was to work with the executive team that I worked with the 21st century Fox. I mean, it's a great story. I added to a portfolio. I got to understand the advertising industry, um, and got close with senior executives in the advertising world. And then when I went to Fox, it was just, it was a totally different group of people that that I got to work with in terms of some of the world's greatest storytellers, uh, you know, D- Dana and Gary Newman uh, at uh, the, t- the studio and the broad- Fox Broadcast Network, Dana Walden. And then, as I mentioned already, FX and John Langreff and Peter Rice kind of uh, leading it. And like that, this group of people um, and, and Brian Sullivan, who came in later from Sky, this group of people who had a, just a totally different view of the world. Um, and so that was, that was something else. Um, and then, you know, obviously going back a ways, uh, James Murdoch, I mean, we spent a lot of time together prior to him joining the board of Truex and, and, you know, giving me a chance to do what I did at Fox. So, um, that, that was eye opening. And I, I, I would suggest for a lot of people, the opportunity to get diversity of experience instead of staying in one lane, uh, too long, um, really, when you start to recognize patterns in businesses across, it, it changes a lot of things for you. All right, pal. I, I think we got it all. all right. Awesome. Yeah, I think that was great. It was a good conversation. Enjoyed it. All right, Joe. Take care. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.